man, I am so glad that this Inhumans versus X-Men nonsense is finally over and we can all get on with our lives. At least until the next major event. Nothing will be the same. A few things, at least. Until they are. It is possible that we are excessively jaded at this point. Uh, but seriously, I'm trying to think of big X events that change the status quo in more ways than just team composition. There are so few. House of M was pretty big. Uh, true that. Uh, hey, did they ever explain the conservation of energy thing? It's the first law of thermodynamics, buddy. I feel like we can pretty much take it as read at this point. No, no, not the real-world one. The thing with all the mutant powers and where they went. Oh, yeah, that's more like conservation of plot elements, but yeah, I get your drift. So, what happened to them? Uh, they ended up in a big blob in orbit. Wait, I thought Blob lost his powers. No, no, not Blob. Blob the common noun. Oh, okay. So just, like, floating in space? Are the powers still up there? Nah, a postal worker named Michael Pointer absorbed them all. That's unexpected. Oh, he may or may not have been possessed by Zorn at the time. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 157 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the third and final part of the Extinction Agenda, but also welcome to our last episode for a little while. How many people are going to hear last episode and not catch the for a little while? As I think we mentioned a couple episodes ago, we're going to be going on a three-month hiatus starting at the beginning of May. We will be out for May, June, and July, and back better than ever, ideally, in August. Yeah, and I mean, to stress, we are totally coming back, so no worries there. But with Jay's move going on, with everything else going on, we could use a break. So we're going to take one, and then we're going to resume being awesome in August. You know what I'm really excited about? What's that? The chance to actually get ahead. You, you have a head. It's right there on your shoulders. Did you want another? Like, say if I'd Beeblebrox? Is this what happens when we record at night? <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, so because Jay's moving, we're actually recording all of the Extinction Agenda episodes, like, way before they air. And the scheduling is a little weird, so right now it's uh, sort of late on a Wednesday. Yeah, it is, in fact, specifically late on the day before I am moving to New York, and I have not slept for over 36 hours because moving and packing and stuff. So, uh... Apologies in advance. We're going to be a little punchy. Just like, you know. A lot punchy. The X-Men, because they punch people. And robots. We'll see They some of shoot that. people in this. Yeah, this is really violent, but. There is a lot of killing going on. <laughs> there is. But anyway, um, we're going to talk more about the hiatus and kind of what that's going to look like and what we're going to be doing in the meantime at the end of the episode. So please stick around for that. That's going to be some useful information to have. News you can use. You know what I'm going to do? What are you going to do? I'm going to sleep in on Saturdays. <laughs> <laughs> Only for three months. It's, I know, but it's been so long since I've slept in on a Saturday. <laughs> for serious. It's sort of a magical feeling. Well, anyway, let's talk about the Extinction Agenda, because, uh, yeah, our last two episodes were the first and second third of the storyline. Now we're going to wrap it up. Okay, since it's going to be the last chance for three months, you want to say it? Oh, God, I do. All right, go for it. Previously on the Extinction Agenda. Genosha is a prosperous nation off the coast of Africa that runs on the labor of enslaved brainwashed mutants called mutates. Now, normally Genosha is run by a president and by a scientist called the Genegineer. But these days, there's another figure high in the chain of command. And it's motherfucking Cameron Hodge. That Angel's, asshole. Angel's old roommate and hardcore frenemy who initially set up X-Factor to sabotage mutant kind caused Angel's plane to crash and almost kill him, which led to Angel becoming an archangel hired the guy who killed Cypher of the New Mutants, almost forced Richter to destroy a city, and killed 
killed Candy Southern. Oh, and he um, sold his soul to a demon in exchange for eternal life, which is why he's now running around as a severed head on a big, wiry, techno-organic skeleton. Right, because after Cameron Hodge decapitated Angel's ex-girlfriend Candy Southern, Angel, now Archangel, with wings of blades and not feathers, decapitated the hell out of Cameron Hodge. But you think that's going to stop him? Hell no. weird demon blood stuff going on? Absolutely not. That's the thing. Like, Cameron Hodge never dies. He just gets weirder. Yeah, because now he's back in pog form. That's absolutely not true. Well, okay, but like you said, he's a roughly human head with now unnecessary round, cracked, creepy accountant glasses. Are those accountant yeah. glasses? Does, no, they're just round glasses. The Genjineer looks a lot like human Hodge. I keep on noticing that, and a big factor is that they've both got those perfectly round metal frame glasses. I mean... I was around in 1990, but I guess I wasn't paying a lot of attention to glasses. Were those a thing? No. Oh, okay. Just when you were, you know, somebody who did bad things to mutants, I guess. I guess. I mean, so this is something that I think a lot about because I'm me, and the extent to which glasses fashions in comics do and don't reflect glasses fashions of the same time period. That makes some sense, because you've worn glasses for like a million years. Well, that and I collect sunglasses and am neurotic about replicating comics-accurate stuff. So yeah, it's really, really, really hit and miss. And the times when you see contemporary designs almost always line up with movies coming out. Interesting. That makes some sense, actually. And I mean, now that's more of a thing, but you don't really start to see glasses that look particularly modern until the late 90s. Huh. Okay. Okay. The more you know about glasses fashion. Yep. But anyway, so Cameron Hodge is indeed co-running Genosha at this point as the commander. The commander of what? Eh, he's just the commander. Stuff. Along with the president, who looks suspiciously like Ronald Reagan, which is a little weird, and the no, engineer. No, she, she doesn't look like Ronald Reagan. She looks like someone wearing a rubber Ronald Reagan mask. It's very weird. Her face is kind of melty. Okay, yes, that is even weirder and makes me think of Point Break, which I think we mentioned in one of the previous episodes. It's awesome. Yup. So the Genosians are pissed at the X-Men because the X-Men have been opposing them in various ways. And also because they're mutants and Genosha is, as a whole, a super, super racist country. Super racist. Like, specifically about mutants, skin color doesn't really seem to matter there, but mutancy really, really does. Well, they're pointedly, and they this was, I think, discussed in A Green and Pleasant Land, they are pointedly really progressive on a lot of other vectors of diversity. But, you know, when it comes to mutants, they are a straight-up slave state. Genosha is pretty pissed at the X-Men in particular and mutants in general after everything that's been going on. So what they did at the very beginning of the Extinction Agenda was to kidnap all the mutants they could get their hands on and teleport them back to Genosha where they depowered them and turned at least a couple into mindless mutates, specifically Storm and Wolfsbane. Boom Boom and Richter were going to be turned into mutates. They were partway into the process, but they were rescued and are now fugitives with Jubilee. She's still got her powers, but Boom Boom and Richter do not. And there is one major X-Men-related wild card in all of this. That is Havoc. You know, Cyclops' brother was on the X-Men for a long time, looked like James Dean in that Meltdown miniseries. So he went through the Siege Perilous when the X-Men disbanded a while back, the Siege Perilous being a portal that wipes your memories and sort of resets your life. And he woke up in Genosha, where he has since become a Genosian magistrate, despite being a mutant himself. There are some mutants in Genosha who voluntarily choose to serve the country, and, you know, oppress their fellow mutants and be kind of jerks about it. And that's where he starts off. Foreshadowing a long history of complicity with corrupt state systems. Yeah, he does that, it's true. But Cyclops managed to knock some sense into him by holding him by the ears and smacking his head against the ground, which was hilarious. And so Havoc now knows who he is, but he's keeping that fact secret so that he can work against Genosha, you know, all stealthy-like. So that's where we find ourselves right now. All of the rescue team from X-Factor, the X-Men, and the New Mutants have been captured. We have a few fugitives. The Gene Engineer has turned a couple of mutants into mindless mutates. 
and Cameron Hodge has killed Warlock. Warlock died. It was so sad. Yeah, that's a big thing. And, you know, it's funny you're mentioning it kind of like an afterthought because it's kind of in the comic like an afterthought. Well, thankfully, we will get some good denouement there, but it's true. Like, Warlock's death is really rushed past with all of the events going on. It's Warlock, man. I know. He's the best space teenager. I'll miss him, but at least he'll be back later. He will be back later. He'll be back in Extra Tragic. Uh, yes, these things happen. So that's where we find ourselves right now as we jump into the final third of the Extinction Agenda, which is Uncanny X-Men number 272, New Mutants number 97, and X-Factor number 62. We open with Uncanny X-Men number 272, Capital Crimes, and we open, as we so often do in crossover events, with NPR TV reporter Manoli Weatherall. Hey, Manoli Weatherall, yeah, she was there for the fall of the mutants. She hung out with Neil Conan. There was a lot of weird magic stuff going on. Yes, and like Neil Conan, she is an actual NPR reporder. Or was. Right. Is or was? I'm not sure. And we're getting a series of fanbite interviews. Uh, we've got a couple recognizable th- figures like Mr. Fantastic, Emmanuel DaCosta, um, Sunspot's dad, and She-Hulk, and one person whose name would be a little less recognizable unless you were used to reading Marvel Comics credit pages, that being editor Suzanne Gaffney. Who thinks Genosha is that new Japanese place that just opened? We also get a slightly ominous quote from um, a shady-looking gentleman who, while not explicitly identified as Frank Castle, is pretty unsubtle. No, I won't tell you my name. If those mutants are guilty of crimes, they deserve the appropriate punishment. Now take that lens out of my face before I make you eat it. So he's just Batman? I mean, kind of. If Batman had guns, he would just be the Punisher. I'm pretty sure that's what it comes down to. Also, if he wasn't rich. Okay, there are a couple of differences. Also, if there is a Robin. There are a few differences. But regardless, they're both unhinged vigilantes who you should probably never get anywhere near. Correct. Now, we don't have the dramatis personae, I love that phrase, and I love that concept, that we've seen in the previous Uncanny X-Men issues of the Extinction Agenda. What we have instead to introduce us to our characters are all of them. In chains. In court. Because, remember? Except for a few, they were all kidnapped by the Genosian government, and they're now being put on trial for crimes against Genosha. All of their costumes have miraculously repaired themselves, except for Wolverine's, which has maintained a single artfully placed boob window. Yeah, Cyclops' costume was totally blasted apart when he was yeah. fighting Havoc. It was just shreds. And now it's back on, so I guess untake a drink? No, no, that's a terrible plan. Maybe have some water. Yeah, you know, you should probably be alternating anyway. Water booze, water booze. And their powers are all currently just cancelled out, which is one of the visual cues of this whole episode. Like, Cyclops without a visor for long periods is always sort of one of those bizarre something is very off, something critical is happening Oh man, it's like Captain Janeway's hair being messed up, but taken to the nth degree. Well, only early in the series before she got the haircut. Oh, that's a good point. That's how you could tell Voyager was in serious peril. Because her hair was messed up. Right. I've been listening to Tighten Up the Defense, the uh, successor podcast to Teen Titan Wasteland, and there's uh, an issue of the Defenders where uh, Namor gets brainwashed, and you can tell he's brainwashed because his hair is a little bit out of place. Yeah, that sounds about right. Right? I'm just saying. God, I love Namor. I was packing up some comics today, and I found a copy of Namor Number 1 from a fairly long time ago, and it's got the best tagline, oh, yeah? or the worst tagline, which is, out of the depths and into the 90s. <laughs> oh no, I would have stayed in the depths. Right? I mean, okay, the 90s had some cool stuff, but they also had some not cool stuff. But can you imagine Namor just like bursting into the 90s as a whole, whatever like emblematic lineup would be? the 90s, but he's just Namor and just sort of yelling and punching people. See, now I'm just imagining him dressed exactly like Vanilla Ice, complete with the stuff shaved into his head. Nope. 
With those big pants? No, no. Namor just showing up in like cool as ice, but just as Namor in his tiny panties and just yelling. Ditch the zero and get with the hero. Imperious Rex! Exactly. And then he punches Vanilla Ice for being a jerk and breaking into someone's room and feeding her ice chips while she's asleep, which is an absolutely unacceptable activity. Vanilla Ice in that movie and What's-His-Face from Twilight are like the same dude. Dude, that's my argument. Well, it's That is my theory. Yeah, no, but um, Cool as Ice effectively predicts a good deal of Twilight. You heard it here first, folks, and possibly also second and third. But with better pants. <laughs> with better pants. Or at least more memorable pants. I don't remember any pants from Twilight. So the X-Men are on trial. And their pants are acceptable, but not exceptional. And Wolverine, because he's Wolverine, decides, despite having no powers, despite having been beaten all to hell repeatedly, and despite having his hands techno behind his back, to just sort of, like, throw himself at all the bailiffs and judges and people. I'm trying to think of what he's hoping to accomplish here. I think at this point, he's just decided to weaponize being a goddamn nuisance. That's reasonable. I sort of saw him as like a bullet bill from Super Mario where he just kind of runs into people and explodes, maybe. Do you ever picture him with like one of those dog cones? Well, now I do. I mean, the way you were describing him just sort of reminds me of a similar level of ineffectuality. (laughs) Well, anyway, it is ineffective because one of the magistrates points out that while he does have an indestructible skeleton, she can still kick him in the motherfucking face. Yeah, so that doesn't work out too well. Now, Magistrate Anderson, who is the leader of the magistrates, she is the chief magistrate, offers the X-Men a choice. She says they can have a fair trial, but... While the trial will be a free and fair one, have no illusions about the outcome. As our laws are written, your very existence condemns you. So that's option A, and option B is that the mutants can volunteer to be converted into mutates, to have their memories and wills and everything wiped away and become slaves of the state. And Gene, speaking for the X-Men, basically says, go fuck yourself. So the judge orders all of the characters turned over to Cameron Hodge, who, again, is now a severed head attached to a giant robot scorpion body and is clearly... I'm not going to say not in his right mind because I'm not sure he ever was, but at this point he's not even attempting to be subtle or hide the fact that he just wants to cause as much suffering to mutants, specifically these mutants, as possible. How do you think a dude like that ends up in a high government position? Like, who sits down and goes, yes, the skittering robot head with the broken glasses and the crazed racism, that's who we need representing our nation. I think maybe they met on LinkedIn, like there was a referral of some sort, it was one of those spam emails that sends out whether you want it to or not. Oh. That would make sense. Stupid LinkedIn. I knew I didn't like it. So Cameron Hodge strings up his prisoners by his weird robot tendrils and looms terrifyingly over them in this truly awesome panel. Like, it's legitimately scary. The way Jim Lee draws this is badass and also not okay. It retroactively reminds me a little bit of the end of the Silent Hill movie. Thankfully, no barbed wire rape here. That scene was so unnecessary in the Silent Hill movie. Yeah, that was gratuitous. Unfortunate, because that was actually a decent video game adaptation. I'm not going to say amazing, but decent. I was going to actually start talking about that, but then I realized that it's the two of us and we could literally just do an hour talking about Silent Hill adaptation issues. I mean, I actually did that with Elle Collins one time on her podcast Into It. Yes. Yeah. It's a good episode. You should all listen to it. (laughs) Well, thank you. So Hodge picks up the unconscious Forge because, as you may recall from the last couple episodes, Forge knows a secret that Cyclops also knows, and Forge deliberately made himself go and stay unconscious so nobody could read his mind, which certainly is a way you could handle that. I assume Cyclops just went, eh, whatever. Cyclops is elsewhere. You know, it's fine. He's over there somewhere. He's not elsewhere. He's in the same room. Yeah, but Cameron Hodge forgot about it because he now has the option to rip off Forge's cybernetic leg and hand. Which he does, enthusiastically. And as Cable and Gambit, who have not yet been restrained, attack, he does the same thing to Cable in a really gruesome, if off-panel, fashion, but not before, during the fight, 
Gambit, for the first time, shows us a truly unfortunate aspect of himself. He just sort of randomly grabs and kisses a female magistrate in the middle of the fight. It's weird. It's creepy. It's creepy when Rogue does it and she's doing it for a reason. It's extra creepy when Gambit does it. She's about to shoot Cable when Gambit swoops in and kisses her and tells her, Poor man's got enough tin bits already. Can't have you adding more. Pity there's no time to do this proper. But I can tell you're probably not in the mood. Next time, perhaps? Gambit needs to go have words with HR and then possibly get fired and blacklisted from everything forever. Gambit's gonna have to say hi to all of his neighbors every time he moves. Yeah. Aww. Yeah, Gambit's behavior is not okay. Well, despite Gambit's weaponized sleaze, Cameron Hodge does win this confrontation thanks to using Psylocke as a human shield. He shoots a spike into Gambit's leg and, like we said, rips out Cable's cybernetics. And Hodge throughout this, he's a really interesting mixture of precise and slapdash. He's got a pretty strong mojo vibe going. I mean, especially the head with the skittery bits. And the glasses are so much a part of this. He's still got that sort of unhinged bureaucrat vibe going. It works really well, and he gets more and more unhinged over the course of the Extinction Agenda, but really over the course of his appearances in X-Books, period. When he started out, he was like this perfect, polite, genteel bureaucrat. And as he's had to keep up those appearances less and less, now he's just letting, like, the frothing sadism out more and more. I really miss something that he had earlier on in the series, which was a very, very ineffectual cardboard cutout body oh, hanging, hanging in front of his... him. Yeah, hanging from his neck. Totally. Like, that was such a good, weird, creepy touch. So with Hodge victorious, Psylocke actually surrenders. She says she's seen enough after all of these horrors, and she's going to voluntarily submit to become a mutate. Hodge is sensibly suspicious and wants to interrogate her further, but Havoc steps in. That won't be necessary, Commander. She's in the Genegineer's hands now. And out of yours, thank heaven. So Hodge is furious, but distracts himself with Archangel. I mean, he hates mutants, but he hates Archangel by far most of all. Yeah, um, in fact, his hatred of mutants derives from his hatred of Archangel. It's basically just sort of generalized outward. This is the first time he's gotten the chance to really look at Apocalypse's handiwork, to look at, you know, Warren's transformation to Archangel while not actively getting his head cut off by him. You know, I don't know whether to applaud Apocalypse for his malicious genius or hate him for upstaging me. See, again, that mojo thing. Oh no, my mojo voice is totally different. Well, yeah, I know. I, I'm thinking the dialogue specifically and his facial expressions throughout a lot of this. And so Hodge, in his continued efforts to torture everybody, throws Wolverine and Archangel into a big sort of combat pit and forces them to fight. And this actually is pretty easy to do because... Angel's lost his powers. He doesn't really have control over his wings at all. Whoops. And as we know, those wings which Apocalypse gave him just want to kill. Also, as Hodge takes a panel or two to exposit, uh, Wolverine and Angel have a history of rivalry that was recently retconned in in one of the classic X-Men backup stories. Yeah, I think it was a backup story in classic X-Men number one, which is also where the uh, Logan and Jean romance thing was introduced. Man, I vaguely resent a lot of the stories like some of them are really good but i mean in this and especially with this particular thing in the logan and gene thing the way they're taken suddenly as writ and the way we just periodically have someone showing up and saying well you know as you know these characters have been rivals for a long time and even though we've never seen that on panel like that bugs me so much it feels so artificial well we have seen some of it on panel before i mean during inferno there was a great big fight between wolverine and archangel yeah but again we had the as you know, they've never liked each other conversation there, too. 
To be fair, knowing Logan and knowing Warren Worthington, I totally buy that they would despise each other. Oh yeah, absolutely. But again, it wasn't something we'd seen a lot of. Well, the fight's going pretty badly because Angel can't control his wings, and Wolverine is in horrible, horrible shape, and of course realizes, simple choice. Either I take Worthington's wings or his life. Those are certainly two options. And the way this fight is drawn is super cool. Like, Jim Lee has, very much has a distinctive style, but he steps away from it a bit because we just see a black silhouette fight in front of a bright red background that gets across the sheer ferocity really well. Hodge is frustrated at the lack of gore and decides to distract himself with a petty revenge elsewhere. He is going to mess with several of his least favorite people at once, namely the engineer and that pesky magistrate Havoc. And so he snoops in the engineer's computer. Off goes the shell of his desktop CPU, on go my interface cables, and out comes the data direct to my brain. Do you narrate when you're doing stuff with computers too, like that? I mean, not quite like that. There's usually a lot more profanity when I'm working on computers. And the other thing that Hodge does in the engineer's office, perhaps the more important thing, is to murder Wipeout. And he specifically kills him with a plasma blast. And this is important because the next person to come in is Havoc, who finds the body. And almost as if on cue, spoiler, totally on cue, Wolfsbane, remember, now a mutate, now basically enslaved and obedient to Cameron Hodge, Ooh. runs in yelling murder, 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 and bringing the authorities to arrest Havoc. Now, he's a mutant working for the state, but because he's a mutant, he would never be fully trusted, even though he was so loyal. And Wolfsbane claims to have witnessed the murder. Mutates are completely and utterly loyal, as far as the state knows. And again, you know, Wipeout was killed with a plasma blast. Evidence points to Havoc pretty strongly. Although, here's the thing. I kind of feel like if you have Cameron Hodge in the building, it's probably fair to assume that anyone who gets randomly murdered was probably murdered by Cameron Hodge. I mean, really, anything bad that happens. Like, if you pull the milk carton out of the fridge and the milk carton's actually empty, but somebody put it back in there anyway, totally Hodge. He is the dude who just leaves one square of toilet paper on the roll. Man, fucking Hodge. Right? Brings in a space heater, but puts it right near the thermostat so the AC ends up super low for everyone else. Tracks mud in, even though there's a shoe rack, like, right by the door. I mean, come on, Cameron, you don't even have feet at this point. Like, he literally just brings the mud in to make muddy footprints. I hate that carries guy. shoes around. Why did I ever let Cameron Hodge move in and kill everyone I love? Listens to music on his headphones in his cubicle, but sings along with it. <laughs> that is surprisingly easy to picture, actually. Isn't it? Like, it sort of goes with pleasant management apocalypse. I really like the idea of just asshole co-worker Cameron Hodge. So, with Cameron Hodge busy leaving the sponge wet in the sink to get moldy... Well, after not washing the communal dishes he used. That gives the X-Men a chance to try to escape in a way that I have to say is fucking awesome. So, Gambit's leg has been impaled with one of Hodge's sort of weird spiky bolts. Gambit manages to pull it out and use it with his feet to pick the lock on his handcuffs, and it's pretty badass. And it's also a total callback to what Storm did to escape in Uncanny X-Men number 113 with the lockpick that was in her headdress. That was that time when, as a baby, she had had the dexterity of, like, a 30-year-old? It's probably best not to remember too closely. It was actually, fact. like, a, a four-year-old, but I, I prefer the idea of her having just been born with the dexterity of, like, you know, someone mid-career. <laughs> The dexterity of me. Yes. Uh, but I love this scene because A, it's a cool callback, and B, I mean, it really does showcase just what a badass Gambit is and how resourceful he is because as Cyclops points out, Gambit deliberately provoked Hodge into shooting him in the leg so that the spike would be there later for him to do exactly this. It's a really big spike, but it doesn't actually seem to impede his mobility or cause him any problems. 
that's kind of a running thing in this. Like people get impaled a lot and then they're basically fine. Yeah, it's true. Maybe the spikes are actually, uh, they have like analgesics built in. Uh, maybe they just have like a kind of tiger balm coating over them. That would be horrible. Are you kidding? Oh God, that would burn like hell, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay, well, not that. But anyway, the X-Men are now free. And speaking of, I don't know, other X-Men who aren't free, I guess, Psylocke is being escorted to go become a mutate by a bunch of magistrates. Surprise, she was just joshing. It would be great if she just yelled psych at this point, because, like, her powers. You know, that actually would be great. Right, like with a P? Okay, if there's ever a director's cut of this issue, let's just make that change and that'll be enough. I want to make director's cuts of a lot of comic books. That would be pretty rad. I just, I I just wanted to rewrite them all. <laughs> the J editing cut, it would be great. Yes. But yes. yeah, she beats the hell out of her captors because, you know, yes, she's bound, but she's a freaking ninja. She can do, like, ninja shit. Fuck yeah. And so she gets them to shoot her bonds, freeing her hands. So that's a really common trope, and it bugs me because what are the fucking odds? I mean, if you're a ninja, apparently pretty high. That's not really something you could set up. Psylocke did. I mean, just look, it's right there. Clearly, that is what happened, therefore it is possible. <laughs> Whatever. So, yeah, she grabs a gun and escapes into the air ducts. Here I go, alone, armed, facing impossible odds, crawling through a ventilation duct. As Jubilee would no doubt say, eat your heart out, Bruce Willis. I really do love that with Jubilee around, now everyone talks like the kids through talking like her, despite the fact that Jubilee talks like Jubilee and like no one else. I love Jubilee. Jubilee talks a little bit like Skank Zero, Hopeless Savage, if she just created compound words instead of making words up from scratch. Still gotta read Hopeless Savages. You do. It is so good. It is so, so, so good. Well, as all this is going on, a different group of magistrates are escorting Storm in convenient mutate form through the halls and are confronted by Cameron Hodge, who just starts killing them like pleased as punch with himself. What the hell, Cameron Hodge? He's just a dick. Now, an interesting thing about this scene is that the magistrates who are escorting Storm, I believe they're all female. I don't know if that's because Storm's a female mutate. I get the impression it's not. It's just that a lot of magistrates are female. Like you said before, Genosha is very progressive, except in that one really important way. And um, this is where we see Anderson make a full 180. She has decided that Hodge is going to destroy Genosha, and she will do whatever it takes to stop him. That's the thing with Cameron Hodge. Like, he brings people together by just being worse than any of them. So it's kind of like the end of Watchmen in a way, but with cracked glasses and a weird robot body. I mean, I think it's more like the end of The Rocketeer, but... Oh, man! I made that, I made that reference either one or two episodes ago, so we can't make it again. <laughs> we sure can think about it, though. We can. Let's all think about The Rocketeer for a minute and how it's an objectively perfect movie. Pause the podcast, think about that, then unpause. Welcome back! Wasn't that fun? I had a good time. Ah, uh, me too. I can actually hear the theme music still swelling in my head. <laughs> so at this point, Psylocke, being all Bruce Willis-like, bursts in and saves Magistrate Anderson by shooting Cameron Hodge a whole bunch. However, the fight is still not going well because Hodge, as we know, is pretty much indestructible. Yeah, they're just really rasputin him at this point. So Anderson begs Psylocke to help her escape. Psylocke has no sympathy for a Genosian magistrate, and we've certainly seen that Betsy Braddock is a hard-ass and is no stranger to letting people die. But Anderson says that she can restore Psylocke's powers, and that at least is enough to win her a chance at life for the time being. Which is good, because back in the pit, Jean is putting herself between Wolverine and Archangel. I mean, that fight's still going on. She's trying to talk them down, and she's doing a pretty good job. But then Anderson and Storm burst in, going after Cyclops of all people. Storm bowls him over with the wind and grabs him, putting her hands over his eyes. Which start burning, 
and in a blinding flash, Cyclops is thrown back and his eyes start glowing red again, and all of a sudden, Storm's a grown woman again. She's an adult, despite having been de-aged into a child by Nanny and the Orphan Maker a long time ago. And has full control of her mind and her powers. So that's the thing. Now, there was some foreshadowing to this earlier, because when the Gene Engineer first decided that he wanted to work against Cameron Hodge, during the process of converting Storm into a mutate, he did something different, and we didn't know what. She said it was a non-standard program. Apparently, it was this. He made it so that when he pulled some kind of a technological trigger, she would turn into a grown-up and be able to give people their powers back? It was specifically when she first came into physical contact with another one of the X-Men. Interesting. And she can only do this with the depowered X-Men. Like, you don't see her repowering anyone else, and it's just for the duration of this story. So it's not a permanent addition to her power set. Sort of like that time she turned into a telepathic space whale wasn't a permanent addition to her power set? I mean, those were fairly exceptional circumstances, yeah. I will bring that up every chance I get. As weird as X-Men is, very few things are as weird as Storm turning into a telepathic space whale. Well, if we're doing that, then I can just go with, remember the time Jean Grey got tentacles? She surely did. The issue ends with a gun-toting Psylocke and a robot body-toting Cameron Hodge charging in for a great big fight, and Hodge getting the fuck zapped out of him by a repowered Cyclops, and it's so satisfying. It really, really is. Although, again, nothing works on Hodge. But that, nonetheless, is the last Uncanny X-Men issue of the crossover, so it's time to move on to New Mutants number 97, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, it's not drawn by Rob Liefeld. He was the cover is, though, and oh man, there are so many muscles on it. It's Cable and Wolverine, and it's one of those covers that I just sort of remember as kind of defining this era in my head, because it's just the two of them being enormous and beefy and angry. Pretty much, and Wolverine's ripped up mask staying on his head somehow. You know, the rule of cool. So instead of being drawn by Rob Liefeld, it's drawn by someone named Guang Yap, who hasn't done a whole lot, but I gotta say, Yap's art is totally acceptable. Like, it doesn't distract from the story, it looks pretty good, it's not all that distinctive, but it's absolutely serviceable, and I have no problem with it. Yeah, serviceable is a good term for it. It is not distracting, it does the things that it needs to do narratively. It also, I believe, is the first introduction of what is going to become Cyclops' signature 90s hair. Yeah, it totally is. The way, the way Yap draws it. I feel okay with that. I always liked Cyclops' 90s hair. It's okay. I mean, it's swoopy. Alex also gets his 90s hair, I believe, in this crossover. Well done, Summers boys. Now, the issue is interesting for a second reason as well, that being that this is the final issue of The New Mutants, written by Louise Simonson. She will be unceremoniously removed from the book between this issue and the next. And the series will only run a total of three issues without her, right? Because it ends with 100. Yeah, 98 through 100 will be plotted by Rob Liefeld and scripted by Fabian Nicieza. She's going to be on X Factor for a while longer at this point. But yeah, this is the end of her New Mutants run. So where we left Cyclops was zapping the fuck out of Cameron Hodge, and that's where we come right back, because Cameron Hodge, although he gets distracted, is now once again immune to Cyclops' powers. That's sort of always been one of his deals, that he can make himself immune to various powers because he plans very well. Yeah, he's got the big three-ring binders with all of the little tabs, and basically evil Leslie noping it up. So while Cyclops is ineffectively blasting at Hodge, Storm goes about starting to repower the various X-Men, but because of the onslaught from the evil cyborg dude... She no, that's a difficult word, man. Okay, because of the hodging of the evil robot dude... Storm because Hodge is still attacking them. Storm only has time to repower Jean. It looks like the X-Men are in trouble, but they are saved by the bell, or rather, by the really big bomb. Because this was the secret plot that Cyclops and Forge had, the whole reason Forge made himself unconscious... There were the various bombs the X-Men had set, but only Cyclops and Forge knew about the extra bomb, the special bomb, the bomb that was programmed to seek out the heart of the Citadel and then detonate. Specifically the technological heart of the Citadel. Exactly. 
So Rubble falls on Hodge. He uses his phasing power to phase away before he gets all that squished. But at least that does give the X-Men a brief respite from getting stabbed and shot and yelled at a whole lot. And now that the secret's out, Forge can wake up. Cyclops gives him an update and Storm swoops in to repower him with a passionate kiss. And remember, the last time Forge saw Storm, she was a child. And the last time he saw her before that was before he thought that she died. So he's been looking for Storm and then disappointed by her youth for quite a while. So this is pretty badass. And I do love like the big lightning cloud above their heads as they kiss. I like the idea of that almost being like an anime style, like emotional effect, but I know it's supposed to be literal. I don't know. Might be feelings. Gambit, unfortunately, continues his run of being sleazy in this part of the arc. One side, mon ami. I think perhaps Storm's next kiss had best be mine. Nope. Dude, she was a kid like ten minutes ago. Come on. Well, and you've only known her as a kid. Yeah, so that's a little creepy, but whatever. I mean, if it were angled as him wanting his powers back, and if we hadn't seen him just, like, grab and randomly kiss someone he was fighting earlier, it would be less creepy, but no, it's, eh, yeah. (laughs) Now, another person who wakes up is Magistrate Anderson, because she was knocked unconscious during the fight with Cameron Hodge, and she tells our heroes that she, in fact, had been working with the Genegineer, whose plan it was to use Storm as his secret weapon disguised as a mutate. In fact, the Genegineer and Chief Magistrate Anderson are now revolting. They sure are! Against Cameron Hodge. That too. And while the X-Men are, you know, in need of any kind of help they can get, they are a little bit leery of this particular alliance, especially the New Mutants, who've seen what the Genegineer did to Rain. I mean, Storm is back, but as far as they know, Rain is still completely brainwashed. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't a secret weapon. She was just a teenage girl that got her head shaved and her will ripped out of her head. Uncool, Genegineer uncool. For serious. So now it's time to split up. Cable's going to take a team to go rescue Wolfsbane and see if they can help her out, and Cyclops is going to take a team to chase Cameron Hodge and try to end his reign of sadistic, evil, racist terror. Meanwhile, in the detention wing of the Citadel, Havoc wakes up. He is the only survivor of a blast that destroyed most of that wing, and the X-Men at this point are just sort of blowing a lot of people up. They are, yeah. I mean, they already killed a bunch of magistrates who were chasing them earlier when they had a warehouse rig to explode. Now they've killed who knows how many magistrates and even mutates with the bomb that went to the heart of the Citadel. It interests me, though, that Havoc survives largely intact, and that reminds me of something that X-Men has long since forgotten, which is that officially, back in the Silver Age and occasionally referenced in the Bronze Age, mutants were supposed to be inherently stronger and tougher than the average human. Like, no matter what their power was, they were just sturdier than Homo sapiens, and everybody forgets that. So that could be a good explanation for how Havoc managed to survive when everybody else got blown apart. I'm gonna go with he's a character with a name. I mean, there is that part too, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, going back to the wanton and wholesale destruction, the X-Men have been, and Genosha has been, basically approaching this like war, rather than superheroics. The X-Men are not here as superheroes. They are not superheroing in this. They are invading a nation. They are, yeah. They're here to rescue their comrades, and given that the Genosians are treating them like war criminals, they're treating the Genosians like it's war. Well, and to take down, you know, Cameron Hodge. That's really the important part. Cameron Hodge is so awful. I don't know what the UN's official ruling is on this, what the international law is, but I feel like one of the few times it is always justified to invade a sovereign nation is if it has appointed Cameron Hodge to a position of high authority. I would agree. That should be like a little asterisk with a little editor's note at the bottom of the various UN charters. Yeah, just like, take Hodge out. Regardless of detail. Yeah. 
And that's kind of what Havoc is thinking, because he at this point has his full memories back, and he realizes what Hodge is doing and what Hodge was trying to make him do, so he vows to himself that he, before this is all over, is going to melt Cameron Hodge into slag. That's promise number one. Remember that one. We'll be coming back to that. Yeah, we're going to get callbacks later. They're going to be really satisfying. Meanwhile, in the Harrowbay slums, Boom Boom and Richter are still stuck in their mutate suits. They weren't actually transformed, but they were put in the skin suits, and... Jubilee is able to blast Boom Boom out of hers, uh, leaving Boom Boom running around in nothing but Jubilee's yellow coat. But before she can get to Richter, they see an unlikely visitor. It's the Genegineer himself. Yeah, he and his mutate gardener are burrowing through the grounds to try to get to Hodge's bunker. I like the idea that that's just a thing they do. They burrow sometimes. It's what they do every Friday night, just to decompress after a hard week at work. Yeah, yeah, the engineer just burrows. Some people go out for a drink with the boys, the engineer burrows. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly, an explosion hits. This, I think, is the explosion that we saw that the X-Men reacted to earlier. I think it might be, or it might be what uh, the kids think, which is that the mutate just hit a buried power line. But regardless, it's pretty effective. The mutate is killed, and the engineer is knocked unconscious. So... The ex-kids immediately claim him as their own. You know, they put him in their bag of holding, like you do. Yeah, no, they drag him around unconscious for a while. And as they are dragging the gene engineer around, Hodge comes in to survey the bomb's damage. Yeah, this must have been the one that we saw go off earlier. Remember, Cameron Hodge can get anywhere plot relevant very, very quickly. He skitters through buildings, he skitters across walls, perhaps he also burrows. I mean, maybe he used to burrow with a gene engineer back before they had their falling out. Miles, that implies that Cameron Hodge is capable of friendship. Uh, he's at least capable of faking it. He did with X-Factor for a long time. Yeah, but then he got his head cut off, and I feel like he's a lot less effective at passing as innocuous these days. No, no, he's just got to have that cardboard cut out of a human body in a suit hanging from his neck. That fools everybody. I mean, that works for me pretty much most of the time. We'll see. There you go. Now, Hodge is pleased because he sees that although the bomb did a great deal of damage, the computers with the information that he needs to defeat the mutants to win the war, they're still pretty much working okay. So, I love the idea... That Ford and Cyclops set up this bomb, but they didn't really understand how computers work, so it just blew up the monitors. <laughs> like that thing in movies where people will shoot the monitor to try to destroy a computer. I love it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm going to call that canon. I'm going to call that the Jay and Miles contribution to the Extinction Agenda. Now it's official because we said so and no one can change it. It's a monitor it. bomb? It's a monitor bomb, yes. And it was those old CRTs back in 1990, so that must have been really satisfying. Yeah. Shot a monitor, shot anything for that matter. No, we did throw a lot of printers down the stairs, though. Oh, that was a good summer, yeah. That was actually, we, we had this fantastic summer job. We were both working for the computer lab at our college, and we had to disassemble a bunch of printers and separate out the recyclable components. And the problem with printer casing is there's no good way to get into it. Like, you have to literally crack it open. And there was this big set of concrete stairs going down to a sort of enclosed area. And there's no one around because it was break and there was a metal door at the end. And we figured out the most efficient way to crack open the printer casing was to throw them down the stairs. And it was so fun. It totally was. What's less fun is having Cameron Hodge like four feet away from you, even if he doesn't know that you're there. So Boom Boom and Richter, especially Richter, given his history with Hodge, are terrified. Jubilee, on the other hand, gives no fucks. He's ugly, yeah, and he's big and more powerful than all of us put together. But what else has he got going for him? Hodge leaves, but Boom Boom finds a small rectangular metal object labeled Warlock, and she quickly realizes what it is. This is what's left of Warlock after he was killed. Richter, furious, wakes the Gene Engineer 
and demands to be taken to wipe out so that his powers can be restored. And once again, I think this is the sixth or seventh time that he has declared that he is going to be shaking the island apart. That is promise number two. Again, remember that one. We'll be coming back to it. The Genegineer takes them back to his lab, and Richter is lecturing him all the while, but he is sidelined by an attack from Rain in mutate form. Yeah, Wolfsbane has been set to guard the place viciously, but the Genegineer, because he's the Genegineer and because of the way mutate science works, is able to get her to stand down just by saying so. But they are once again stymied in their mission because, again, Wipeout is still in the office, and why didn't they take the body away? Because then this part of the plot wouldn't have made as much sense. Eh. So the Gene Engineer explains the frame job as it must have happened, and Richter starts to threaten the Gene Engineer, but Jubilee stops him for reasons I enjoy. Put a sock in it, Rick. It's my power, so I get to make the speech. And so she threatens to feed the Gene Engineer a string of fireworks, which I enjoy the hell out of. But the Gene Engineer explains, well, with Wipeout Dead, he can't change them back. But they have another option. Storm walks in with Cable Cannonball and Sunspot. Sunspot's a little disappointed that they preempted the follow-through of Jubilee's threat, but, you know, what can you do? I'm kind of with Sunspot here. So Storm flies over to Richter and Wolfsbane and repowers them. And I kind of love this panel because with Storm not having her cape or her flowing hair or anything like that, it just kind of looks like she's doing an impressive Olympic dive across the room. Just a fancy flip. Yeah. Yeah. And Rain suddenly is herself again. Well... Sort of, because she's only herself, she only has free will when she's in her wolf form or her hybrid form. It's explained by the Gene Engineer that because of the way he set her up as part of the way that he is opposing Hodge, she's fine then, but if she ever goes back to her human form, her will is gone once more. On the dubious upside, her hybrid form and wolf form are now fucking enormous. Yeah, her wolf form looks like a bear. It's gigantic. Like, it's way bigger than it ever was. She's freaking Krinos in that thing, which is weird because it's supposed to be pure wolf, but whatever. So I actually really dig this transition for Rain because this is kind of the era where she goes from being very fragile, especially emotionally, and very uncertain to being driven by a lot of anger and a lot of anger that she's been very clearly repressing for a very long time. And it feels like a very organic transition and having her suddenly become kind of the bruiser of the teams that she's on works really well for me here. Yeah, I mean, character transitions don't always work very well when they're that thorough. I mean, I'm thinking of specifically Speedball and Penance back in the day and I think the first Civil War story. Do we talk about that? I thought we didn't talk about that. Maybe we'd better not talk about it. Actually, no, we can talk about it. We can only talk about it if we talk about the Squirrel Girl story with his cat in a little tiny penance suit. The Penitent Puss. I'm pretty sure that there's at least one really, really saucy Elizabethan story um, with that title. That's probably true. But regardless, like you said, this change for Wolfsbane really fits. I mean, I always enjoy mutant powers used as metaphors for the characters, not just mutancy used as metaphors for larger social things. And we talked a little bit to uh, Cena Grace about this in the context of Iceman, and I think it works for Wolfsbane as well. It always has with her from the first time she was introduced, this repressed, self-shameful character with these bestial powers that still made her feel more free. And now her powers are being used in a different way to reflect a different change that she's going through. We're going to see that explored a lot more later on in X Factor. Oh yeah, big time. But uh, for now, it's just kind of confusing and surprising. But awesome. I love how monstery she is here. There is a tendency in comics and in visual media in general to have the central and unchanging characteristic of any female character, especially female characters who are good guys, being conventional attractiveness. 
at worst and most baffling, this gives you werewolves like the ones from Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose, who are literally just naked ladies with Courage Wolf's head. That was so weird. That was a thing. Tarot certainly is a thing in general. It really is, yeah. It's quite a comic book. And this is something you see across media. Like, if you look at the original character designs for World of Warcraft, you see the female trolls looking a lot more monstrous originally, and then being toned down to be prettier, to be less weird and, you know, more human-looking and more, again, conventionally attractive. The new mutants have escaped that to some extent, but it's always satisfying to me in a visual medium when a sympathetic female character gets to be genuinely physically monstrous. Well, and not just physically, because she has so much not just anger, but aggression inside, and she vows to tear Cameron Hodge apart with her own fangs and claws if that's what it takes. That is promise number three. Remember that. We'll be coming back to it. All right, so we've got melted to slag. Shaken apart and torn apart with bare hands. And teeth. And teeth, you know. And claws. Body parts, anyway. Wolfsbane's anger doesn't have much time to uh, be an independent emotion because it's also replaced by grief as she sees the box that was once Warlock. She already saw him die, and now she has this reminder, and she just kind of loses it. She falls apart. The Jean-Geneer, who always looks on the bright side of horrible situations, points out that, hey, at least Hodge didn't get the techno-organic powers that would have come with it, because he'd be unstoppable then. So, you know, Rain did accomplish something. Good job. So, at this point, the New Mutants and Jubilee have a lot of anger built up for a lot of reasons. They smash the crap out of the mainframe to help cripple Cameron Hodge, and since they're younger, maybe, I don't know, they know that they shouldn't just shoot the monitor, which, again, canonically, is what happened. They are tech-savvy kids, Miles. They are hackers. They know about skateboarding through the internet. They surely do. Cameron Hodge, of course, takes the Hodge Express, the skittering fast Hodge Express, to show up at this exact moment as he shoots spikes at a bunch of the characters and nails them to the freaking wall, which I gotta say, it doesn't look that bad, but think about it. Think about spikes going through your shoulders. They're really big spikes, too, and the way they're going through, they'd have to be going through bone as well. That would hurt so much, that would totally fuck with their arm control nerves. Uh, That would fuck with a lot more than that. Um, Yeah, and and they talk later on, like, people mention the being injured, but there's no visual indication of it, and it's very strange. So the rest of the characters who are not nailed to the wall fight back, including the Jean-Geneer, who has this gigantic, almost cable-looking boxy gun that he damages the hell out of Hodge with, to which Hodge responds by breaking the Jean-Geneer's neck and killing him. The Jean-Geneer's rebellion may continue at this point, but that dude is toast. Hodge retreats after taking out the Jean-Geneer, and Cable, along with the uninjured members of the team, that's Richter, Wolfsbane, and Storm, follow to take him down. So we still have one more chapter of the Extinction Agenda left, but this is the last New Mutants issue of the storyline, which means that since Wolfsbane is not going to stay on the team after this, this is the last time that Rain Sinclair is going to be seen in a New Mutants Volume 1 issue. Yeah, the only two OG New Mutants who are still going to be around at the end of the series are Cannonball and Sunspot. Yeah, that's so strange. And then Sunspot's going to leave pretty soon as well, and then we're going to have X-Force, and New Mutants will be, at that point, fully gone. Which makes me sad, but, you know, nothing lasts forever, I guess. Yeah, mutatus mutandus. So let's dive into the final chapter of the Extinction Agenda in X-Factor number 62, which, holy crap, has such a good cover. Oh man, it really, really does. Jim Lee is an artist who's, at this point, his interiors are really good too, but holy fuck his covers. His covers are so good. Yeah, if I had a locker, I would have every single Jim Lee cover I could fit on the inside of that locker. Maybe I need a locker just so I can do that. But anyway, it's a picture of Havoc with his uniform all ripped up, so uh, take a cover drink, I guess. Yeah, his shirt is just gone. 
radiating his awesome concentric circles outward with the other X-Men around him, including a particularly badass-looking Wolverine nearby. And a very unimpressed Jubilee. (laughs) It's pretty great. Jim Lee does not do the art to this issue, however. That is, once again, John Bogdanov, who did the other two X-Factor issues. Inked by Al Milgram. Yeah, alas. Mm. What's interesting initially here is that Wolfsbane's hybrid form, it's less of a wolfy girl, the way that was drawn by Guan Yap, and more of a gigantic werewolf wearing, like, a rag bikini instead of her mutate outfit. I like the more monstrous version of her not-so-into-the-raggedy bikini. There is that. And Richard tries to hold her back from, guess who? It's Hodge. Again. He's back, fighting them once more. And Richard tries to hold her back because he knows that there's no way that she can win. And seeing the two of them side by side, like, you thought she was big last issue? She is seriously like the offspring of a refrigerator and a bear. You like that mental image? There you go. That one's free. I'm having a lot of trouble processing that. That's fair. So they get in a big fight, and Storm and Cable, who are in a nearby ventilation shaft, approach as well. It doesn't really go well for anybody. Cameron Hodge shoves his scorpion tail into the air vent where Cable and Storm are, impales Cable through the chest, and pulls him down like 20 feet to slam him into the ground. I gotta say, Bogdanov's art in the Extinction Agenda, it's not always so hot, but the way he draws the impact of stuff like that, just the way I wince as I read it, that's worth something. Speaking of wince-worthy scenes, Cable at this point radios Cyclops for help, and the other team springs into action. Or tries. Uh, Because Cyclops tells Jean Grey to hang back from the battle. He's worried about her. And Wolverine tells Cyclops to fuck off for saying something like that. Jean is pretty much done with both of their bullshit. Hold it. Logan's right. I'm not going to hold back when my actions can make a difference any more than you would. And she turns to Logan to say, And I'm perfectly able to speak for myself and make my own choices. Is that understood? Fuck yeah, Jean Grey. Ditch those losers and go hook up with Storm or something. Wolverine and Cyclops watch her telekinetically stomp away, angry at both of them. Back with the other characters, Cameron Hodge is about to kill Storm, but thankfully, it's the other team, led by Archangel, to the rescue, who screeches through Hodge's phasing mechanism, trapping Hodge inside the wall. Unfortunately, it doesn't help much, because instead of merging with the wall, Hodge is just trapped in it, and he's able to break out. He's also able to spit paralyzing goop at Archangel, which freezes Archangel's wings completely. Hodge is about to decapitate him with a saw blade that he had installed for, it seems like, exactly that purpose. I feel like that's something Hodge would do. I'm just going to put a saw blade inside my tail, just in case I'm near Archangel and want to decapitate him like he decapitated me. Do you think that he has to put in a command? What this takes me to, of course, is the greatest X film of all time, X-Men Origins Wolverine. What part of X-Men Origins Wolverine does this take you to? The part with shitty Deadpool. Oh, right. Where he's an assassin, but he's basically a bad text adventure assassin, and Stryker just types in the commands for him, and one of them is decapitate. (laughs) I had somehow forgotten that glorious cinematic moment. Oh my god, no, it's amazing. Every second of that movie is a beautiful crystal snowflake of baffling awfulness so bad that it comes full circle into brilliance. Cameron Hodge doesn't have time to execute the decapitate command that he has been given by the text parser dude, presumably, because suddenly there's a blast of concentric circles because, hey, it's Havoc to the rescue, because frickin' everybody's coming to the rescue, and it's awesome. I really like that we never say a blast of plasma, it's just a blast of concentric circles. I mean, you know, potato, potato, right? Yeah. But I actually love this right here. Because we'd complained a little bit about John Bogdanov's work on these issues of the Extinction Agenda, the X-Factor ones that he draws. And right now, starting with this panel, this is good John Bogdanov. He is back, and his work, as it can often be, is freaking awesome again. I mean, he's no Neil Adams, and he's no John J. Muth. 
but it's a passable representation of Havoc's powers. Well, it's pretty awesome. But these saves keep on continuing because as Hodge is then about to impale Archangel and Havoc, there's a telekinetic save and Cyclops and Wolverine and Jean Grey show up. So it's just like rescue after rescue after rescue. It kind of reminds me of that one scene in Final Fantasy IV where like every hero that you've teamed up with comes to save you when you're attacking the giant of Babil or the equivalent scene in Final Fantasy IX or the equivalent scene in Skies of Arcadia. It's a classic, you know, the cavalry and all your comrades show up thing. And what I love about this scene is that this is the first time we've seen this played out with the X-Men, because in Inferno, they were all set off against each other and fighting. You didn't see this kind of just sort of snowballing camaraderie. And I mean, it makes sense, because if we're talking three-act structure, this is our return of the Jedi. This is where all the heroes finally are able to get past their differences and unite and get over the various losses they've suffered and start kicking some serious villain ass. And it is so freaking satisfying. And it's teamwork because ultimately the best X-Men fights are all about, okay, no, the best X-Men fights are about Cyclops using his environment to kick the ass of something way larger than him. But the second best X-Men fights are all about teamwork. So they do manage to chase Hodge off again, but Wolverine and Jean are pretty severely beaten down. So the Summers brothers go after Cameron Hodge. Elsewhere, Forge has magically regrown his limbs. Yeah, there were some continuity issues in this crossover. Let's not worry too much about those. But Beast pulls himself to his feet. Cyclops had told him in the last part of the Extinction Agenda, in the last episode, to gather up the unconscious X-Men near him and get them to safety. He doesn't know how to carry that many people, so he enlists some mutates by yelling at them, which I guess they're used to and also pretty quickly runs into the injured New Mutants, the ones that got stuck to the wall by Cameron Hodge through shoulder spikes. They have also had some continuity assists. Boom Boom is back in her mutate suit, which I believe was the one that Jubilee exploded off of her last issue. Eh, what can you do? So as all of the various injured X-Men and Beast are trying to get the hell out of the Citadel, they're confronted by a bunch of Genosian magistrates. That can't be good, because they're all beaten to hell. They couldn't fight a bunch of Genosians right now. But it's okay, because they are led by Anderson, and Anderson has a gun to the president's head and um, announces, We magistrates know that our president is insane, American. We have neutralized her, even as your teammates are working to neutralize Cameron Hodge. How can we aid you? So, yeah, Anderson and the unfortunately deceased Gene Engineer, well, sort of unfortunately deceased Gene Engineer, they're iffy. They've done some horrible things. They've supported some truly abhorrent practices in Genosha, but they're taking their country back from the horrors who have been running it. They may not make an honest buck, but they're 100% Genosian and they don't work for no two-bit cyborg. Well, there we go. But yeah, I, I really do love this trope, the idea of foes working together against a greater evil. Again, Hodge is so awful that it becomes a unifying thing. He's just that much of a dick. People who would kill each other in other circumstances can bond over how much they dislike Cameron Hodge. Or simply people who could never find common political ground. When you have a greater evil like that, sometimes it's worth having conversations you otherwise wouldn't. You know, it's not just political ground. It's also practical ground. Like, this is the guy who brings together people from all walks of life, from all ideologies, from all nations. I think everyone can agree that Cameron Hodge is just a fucking bag of dicks. He is. Everyone agrees that the Beatles are great, and everybody agrees that Cameron Hodge is terrible. I actually know a couple of people who don't like the Beatles. I know. My girlfriend isn't a big fan of the Beatles. It's my biggest complaint about her relationship. Yeah, what the hell, man? I don't know. Maybe I'll convince her one of these days. But anyway, at this point, pretty much everybody's on the same side except for Cameron Hodge. Well, and the president, but she's got a gun to her head, so whatever. And the Summers boys have finally caught up on the roof of the Genosian Citadel, because if you're going to have a big uh, showdown, that's the kind of place you want to have it. Yeah, and Hodge will have none of this. 
Even now my circuits are repairing the damage you have done. Soon I will be good as new, and then I shall wreak such revenge upon Eugene Jokes and wipe your kind off the face of this planet! Cyclops and Havoc are pretty much done, and they just sort of blast the hell out of him. And man, this arc in particular, I really, really love the we're dysfunctional and things are rough, but goddammit, we have each other's backs in Crisis Summers Brothers. Seeing the torn-up Cyclops and Havoc standing side by side in, like, this giant blast of yellow just silhouettes in front of energy, just, like, radiating concentric circles and optic zappiness, it's so badass and so heartening. I think they're holding hands, too. It's very Wonder Twins. You know, I feel okay about that. And they just blast the crap out of Hodge. They just shatter his robot body into smaller and smaller pieces until all that's left is a head. Promise number one achieved, blasting Cameron Hodge to slag. Hodge, however, doesn't care. He just keeps talking. Hit me with the full force of your powers. Tear my body into scrap metal and still I will live to destroy you. There is nothing you can do to silence me. I am your worst nightmare for I have made a deal with a demon and cannot die. Even your own death will not protect you. In my hatred, I will pursue you even beyond the grave. Did you keep waiting for him to cut to Ricardo Montalban doing Gregory Peck doing Ahab? Oh, from Hell's Heart, I Stab at Thee? And so forth, yeah. Pretty much that. But that's one thing I love about Cameron Hodge. He is a dude who has, like, taken every single aspect of the X-Men universe and crammed it into his own backstory just so he can be powerful enough to make the X-Men suffer again and again and again. He is so very driven by that level of hatred and that level of just insidious, sadistic rage that he's got demons, he's got techno-organic viruses, he's got racist countries behind him, just whatever it takes. And that's how you get a Genesis planet. So, Havoc and Cyclops manage to blast him off the Citadel, but he pulls Alex with him as he falls, and Scott won't let go, sending them both plummeting down in kind of a great callback to the flashback scene where Scott first reminded Alex of their origin story and Alex started to sort of snap back into himself. Oh, right. The two of them falling out of their parents' exploding plane and Scott holding Alex as they just had the one parachute to share. That is a really cool little parallel there. Yeah, that is an ongoing motif with these two. Thankfully, Jean Grey is not too far away and she telekinetically catches them and telekinetically rips the weird Hodge-severed head off of Alex and Scott. He lands at Rain's feet and Rain grabs him by the eye sockets and proceeds to keep her own promise regarding what she would do when she got her hands on Cameron Hodge. That's promise number two. She starts tearing him apart with her own claws. God, this event's cathartic. It really is. I mean, seriously, this entire last issue is just basically like them going all Rasputin on Cameron Hodge and just killing him again and again and again. Well, Cameron Hodge would be the Rasputin figure in that context. Oh, well, going all the people who tried to kill Rasputin on Cameron Hodge. Yep. But that still leaves one promise, and that still leaves a Cameron Hodge that, despite being torn up and knocked off a building and removed from his body, is still not dead. So Richter, as Rain throws Hodge's head to the base of the Citadel, brings down the entire, like, 600-foot-tall building on top of Hodge. Remember the part in Final Fantasy Advent Children where everyone uses the limit breaks, like, together? The one big team-up move? Oh, the one where they all just throw a cloud into the sky higher and higher, and it doesn't make any sense, but it's awesome? Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of like that. So, that's Cameron Hodge. I mean, okay, let's be real. He'll totally be back because he's still immortal, but he did get his ass very thoroughly kicked. Not only will he be back, but he'll merge with Bastion. That motherfucker. I know, I know. (laughs) So we've been going back to how much the X-Men have been killing a lot of people, and yeah, they just brought down, like, the center of Genosian culture. They just collapsed it. Like, I mean, it's like that 
conversation from clerks about the contractors on the Death Star, I feel like a lot of innocent people probably died, or at least not fully evil people. Well, and it's kind of worse because a lot of them would have been mutates who are slaves. They're not just contractors who are voluntarily working for this corrupt government. They are conscripted slaves who've been brainwashed. Well, there's no time to dwell on that because it's time to bookend the story by having a TV report. So we've got Magistrate Anderson on TV telling the world of the president's breakdown that caused her rash actions and that soon Genosha will be holding elections. Now, she claims that the story is to protect the mutates from outside exploitation, but the X-Men really don't trust her, and Havoc decides that having been complicit in the Genosian state, he kind of needs to own his shit, and he's going to stick around and basically advocate for mutate rights and try to protect them from inside exploitation. And I gotta say, that's actually a pretty stand-up thing to do. Like, that's that's super ethical and responsible, and I really respect Alex Summers for making that decision. Yeah, good work, kid. He's not the only one that stays behind, because Wolfsbane is gonna stay here, too. I mean, remember, she's been transformed such that if she ever turns into her human form again, she's gonna be a brainless mutate. She might not be able to get out of it that time, so she has to stay in her wolf form. She's never gonna look normal again. I mean, at least not for a real long time. Well, and she is dealing with some stuff that I think... It makes sense to want to be within working with people with a common frame of reference and trauma in this regard, so. Richter's really disappointed, but Wolfsbane explains, I'm a mutate now, Rick, and my place is here with these people. I need to help them and try to ensure that some good comes of the horror that was done to me and to those others. Boom, boom. You and Rick take Warlock's ashes, sprinkle them on Doug's grave for me. And sure enough, days later... At the very end of the story, we see Warlock's funeral, we see the graveyard, and we see everyone in mourning. And man, Boom Boom's line is what wrecks me here. Because, you know Boom Boom, she's glib even at the worst of times. And she's wearing an amazing, amazing outfit. But what she says is, Goodbye, self-friend. We're going to miss you. And Richter adds, You and Doug. Rest in peace. But man, she calls him self-friend. I know, like, she was the one that never took anybody's idiosyncrasies seriously. She made fun of everybody for everything. And seeing that raw emotion, that's rough, but it works. We need something this bittersweet. We need the acknowledgement of the loss of one of the most lovable characters who's ever been in the X-Men universe. Yeah, I think as Rain is learning to own her anger, Boom Boom is kind of grudgingly learning to acknowledge that she is and always has been a character with a lot of heart. And speaking of Rain and Boom Boom, actually... There's something that interests me about this scene, which is that the two characters who are sort of verbally mourning Warlock are the two who have known him the least amount of time, Boom Boom and Richter. We also Oh yeah, have... that's a good point. I mean, Sam and Roberto are still around. Yeah, and Roberto and Warlock were real close. They were in Fallen Angels together. Well, so was Boom Boom. Well, okay, that's true. But it's interesting. I think it makes sense, though, because Wolfsbane and Boom Boom have been bonding a lot over really quite a while, ever since they've been in the same book together, because... Rain could always see the best in people, and Rain could see that core of compassion, that core of generosity, and that core of love inside Boom Boom through her, like, really obnoxious exterior. Well, and given the ways they've clashed, I would imagine that that vote of trust in, you know, being the one who Rain gave those ashes to would mean a lot to Boom Boom. Yeah, so that kind of works for me. I, I kind of like that. But regardless, the four remaining New Mutants all hold hands and walk away hoping that Warlock's sacrifice would be made worth it by Genosha staying free. We close with Warlock's glimmering ashes on Doug's grave. Beneath the azure sky, the mound of ashes seems to flash in answer. Is it merely the sunlight glinting on metallic dust? 
or the promise of something more. Why not both? Because, yeah, Warlock's Ashes on Doug's grave, that's going to give us Douglock a number of years from now. But for now, it's a nice, slow, quiet denouement to a story that's been largely about action and pain and loss and intensity. And I like that. And making this the end of the story, I think, does a lot to offset how offhand Warlock's actual death was in the story. I agree, yeah. I also want to note, this is something I really like about a lot of X-Men events, and that even the really bleak ones in this era almost always end with sort of a note of wistful positivity. Yeah, I dig that. It works really well. Yeah, I think that that's a really nice feature in something that we know is going to be an ongoing comic. So that's the end of the Extinction Agenda. That's the end of this gigantic crossover that has killed a character, left a number of others long-term altered, and has finally brought all three teams together for the first time in... Uh, ever, I guess? So, what do you think? I have mixed feelings about the Extinction Agenda, because we're so clearly in a transitional era between the 80s and the 90s at this point, so it doesn't feel like it's really part of either. And while I do like that it's one big focused story, and the pacing in it is pretty awesome. Yeah, the pacing is really solid. Because it's a story about all three teams, you don't see the kind of team-specific focus that we saw to a degree in Fall of the Mutants, but especially in Inferno. Yeah, and you're starting to see the kind of continuity errors that you get with a crossover this large and this spread out. So, I like the consequences that come out of this crossover. I think it's a more interesting X-Universe because of what occurs here. But I do wish we had more of a focus on character, and honestly, that's something that I'm going to miss a lot of the time in the upcoming 90s. Like, we're going to have so much action going on, we're going to have so much plot going on, that the quiet moments we're not going to see as many of. And I think the Extinction Agenda, while it does have a number of good ones of its own, starts that trend in a way. Yeah, I think it's got a lot of individual moments in it that are much better than the whole. That said... There are so many cool things here. I mean, would I recommend this storyline? Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah, it's generally pretty solid. And I think, honestly, the things that you're citing as negatives um, about it being transitional are all things that I really like about it. I mean, it feels like a really good transition from the 80s to the 90s. It's a shift in the team dynamics. It's a shift in the feel of the line. And it does a lot to contextualize that. It may not quite give us closure, but... It makes what I think otherwise feels like of a very, very abrupt transition a little more organic. I would agree with that, yeah. So the Extinction Agenda, good stuff. That was part three of three, and that is the end of our coverage of it. And now we're off for three months, but not quite, because you have questions. Bill D. emailed us to ask, Do you collect individual issues or stick to trades? And what are your most prized issues of any book? Doesn't have to be X-Men. I know, Jay, that you've worked in comics, maybe Miles too, so I'd like to hear your take on collecting. When you work on a book, do you think that down the road, someone might be bagging it to keep it mint, seeking out that variant, etc.? Or are you thinking only of your craft? So, I have a lot of single issues. I am not a collector per se. I tend to track down issues that are important to me, or that have particular resonance for me, but I don't, I, I do that so that I have them to read, not so much because I care about keeping them mint. That said... As an editor and a publisher and as a reader, one of the things that I love about the age of digital publishing is that it is making people newly aware of books as physical artifacts. Because if you can get something that's as legible and cheaper or the same price in digital form and more convenient, there has to be a good reason to get it physically. And yeah, you know, you can say the collectible thing. But again, that's not really my thing. But what I love is that what that's led more and more publishers and designers and printers to do is make books whose physical form is very much part of it, the experience of reading them. And I love that stuff. In any medium, I really love it when form and function blend well. And when you have, you know, 
physical objects that have reason to exist as physical objects. So that's something that I love and look for very much in comics. I'm trying to think of a, a most prized single issue. Man, what's yours? So for me, it's actually less about single issues and more about runs of comics. So like, huh. I have all of Walter Simonson's Thor, and I treasure the hell out of that collection of single issues. And while I may have my favorites among them, there aren't any that are my favorites as collectible items. And then I know between the two of us over the years, we got all of the first volumes of both New Mutants and Excalibur, and that's pretty awesome Yeah, as well. I mean, you've still got those. Those are still basically mutual collections. Oh yeah, no matter what city they're yeah. in. Yeah. But these days, I actually mostly collect digitally just because it's so damn convenient not having to sort through long boxes or worry about ripping a floppy if you turn the page wrong. Yeah, and we end up mailing out almost all of the X books that we buy in uh, Patreon packages. We do, yeah. I mean, back when Marvel was doing digital codes and they soon will be again, we just, you know, keep those. Yeah, and we also like being able to support our local comic shops. Absolutely, yeah. But that being said, I do often enjoy buying trade paperbacks, specifically if it's a story that I know I'm going to want to lend out a whole bunch. So, like, I don't even know how many copies of Saga Volume 1 I've bought and, like, lent and then ultimately given away. Oh, yeah. I have gone through, at this point, more than a dozen copies of Finder Talisman. Actually, I'm going to say that it's not a single issue. It's a book, but it's a comic. So, Finder is one of my all-time favorite comics. Finder is maybe my all-time favorite comic. And I edited it for a long time. And one of the projects that I, I really wanted to do, and I joke that I got a job in comics and worked my way up through Dark Horse so I could submit this book to costing so that it could eventually get published and then I could own a copy and then I could just leave the publishing industry because my work there would be done. But um, I was talking about books as physical artifacts. And one of the volumes of Finder, the story called Talisman, and Talisman is all about that. It's all about, um, it's, it's dedicated to, quote, the kid with the book. It's all about the magic and hunger of books as artifacts and books as objects and books as physical representations and manifestations of the stories within. And there's this one book that's very, very important in it. And I always wanted to do an edition of Talisman that was bound as that book. And I finally did. I, it was a, a limited edition. And I have one of the very few unnumbered copies of that, which is probably the book in my collection that I care about the most because it's at a good intersection of things that are, are important to me as a reader and that I'm very, very proud of having been a part of making. Awesome. Oh, God. Finder is so good. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Michael R. Wentz asks on Tumblr, I just got Marvel Unlimited and have been reading mostly short runs or series that don't cross over a lot. However, I am very interested in reading a long-running X series and don't quite know where to start. I was thinking Grant Morrison's run would be a good place to start or X-Factor Investigations. Any recommendations for a mostly self-contained X-Line to binge read? Oh man, Michael, I love this question, because that's a lot of how I really love reading X-Men as well. I mean, of course, we do the issues every week for our episodes, but I love just sinking my teeth into like a dozens of issues long run by a single creator, or at least featuring single characters. So, you'd mentioned Grant Morrison's run, and yeah, that is an awesome place to start. It's uh, relatively self-contained, which I think is part of the appeal. And if you like that, you can then go into the series that directly follows it, which is Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men. It's a direct sequel. And it's also terrific. Yeah, and they're both very, very different takes on the same premise and really cool to read side by side. You also mentioned X-Factor Investigations, and yeah, I'm actually in the process of collecting that one in trade right now myself just because I love it so much. One of my favorite bitch read titles is uh, Cable and X-Force. Oh yeah, Dennis Hopeless's run on that was great. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. I think I actually read that over like a night or two. <laughs> it's also pretty short, which is nice. Yeah, and it's got a lot of momentum in ways that make it really fun to just read in a sitting. 
I'm also a big fan of the run that starts with New Mutants Volume 2 and then continues into New X-Men Academy X and then New X-Men Volume 2. You know, the one about Surge and Hellion and Prodigy and all those kids. It is criminally Most of them are dead. Many of them are dead, it's true. But that is a criminally underappreciated run. Highly recommend it, and God, I would love to see those characters back, and I will mention it as many times as I have to until they come back. Also, reading the X-23 Innocence Lost miniseries, then X-23 Target X, and then Marjorie Lou's X-23 Ongoing, it just flows very nicely from one issue to the next to the next, has a really solid ending, and then, hey, once you're done with that, you can jump into the current run of All New Wolverine, which is amazing. But honestly, you have so many good options in X-Men. So Ooh, just like, um, X-Men Legacy, either series, honestly, with uh, that title. Oh, yeah, yeah, either the uh, Mike Carey Christos Gage run or the Cy Spurrier run that's about Legion. Both, They're very, very different books. Both really stellar, yeah. So many good options. I'm excited for you. Have fun with that. Oh, I should say, actually, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown is also on Marvel Unlimited. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to do hard mode, there's always Age of Apocalypse. Well, that's not a single series. It's a single monstrosity. They're, they're asking about, about single series runs. <laughs> yeah, well. It's not even a single monstrosity. Like, it's, it's the Cameron Hodge stage of, like, a lot of sort of protean limbs and <laughs> things like that. Well... Anyway, here's where we would normally thank some people Patreon-wise, but right now we're just going to thank everybody for being with us through this damn near uninterrupted run of 150-something episodes. Yeah, that's a lot. And preemptively thanking y'all for being on the other side when we get back. And I should say in context of Patreon, we are going to be putting the Patreon on pause starting May 1st. I will come back August 1st. So um, if you are subscribing now, you won't be charged in May, June, or July. If you jump in and start subscribing during that time, I'm not sure if you can subscribe to a paused Patreon. I don't know. I guess we'll have to look into we'll, it. We'll find out. Um, then you will be charged for the first time at the beginning of August. But yeah, we are pausing the Patreon during the hiatus. If you want to continue to support the podcast, you can always buy t-shirts. Or just like, around. make sure to be there when we come back. That is absolutely the best way yeah, to support honestly, us. Yeah, honestly, that is the thing to do. And of course, the archives will still be around. And we will both still be around as well. Possibly not in our current forms. I feel like we're, we're about to jump into the Siege Perilous or something. Oh, man. Like, you're going to wake up naked in New York City as a used car salesman or something? I'm not sure if they let you be a used car salesman if you're naked. Well, you wouldn't be naked forever, just at first. And then, or like, what I? I- I'll wake up still here in Portland, but I'll be a shampoo model or something. So, just your current life then? Yeah, well, I think I need to trim these split ends before they'd let me in. For you that. really do. You really, really do. <laughs> yeah, so what are you going to be doing during the hiatus, Jay? sleeping in on Saturdays. <laughs> Aside from that. No, I'm going to be, I mean, I'm going to be getting settled in a very new, you know, city and state in life. I'm still, you know, going to be freelance writing. I will be around online. I have some smaller projects planned and going. And I, I have one big secret project that I, I can't really talk about, but I'm going to be mostly taking this time to, to sort of get my footing in New York and sort of put out freelance feelers. Speaking of which, if you are in the New York City area and uh, hiring writers or editors, hi. Oh, oh, yeah, and um, my best friend's getting married in May, so I'm going to run off to North Carolina for a week and make sure that that happens properly. Nice. Yes, I am very excited about that. And Miles, I gather that you are going to be taking a break from podcasting by podcasting. Yes, and I am really excited about it. So this has been announced for a couple of weeks, but we've barely talked about it on the show. So I'm going to talk about it a little right now. So I'm going to be doing a show called Thor, The Lightning and the Storm with Elizabeth Alley, who you've probably heard a couple of times on this show if you've caught our past episodes. Oh my God, this is going to be the most enthusiastic show ever. That's basically the idea because we're going to be covering the entirety of Walter Simonson's run on Thor, aka my favorite run of any comic ever. Can we talk about the Thor Ragnarok trailer for a second, by the way? I will say, I feel like you're launching this at the perfect time because I think there's a whole group of people who are either getting regalvanized in their love of Thor or are just discovering kind of tonally 
just how weird and amazing and epic it can get. Yeah, because that's the thing. I mean, the Thor Ragnarok trailer doesn't exactly feel like Simonson's run, but it certainly pulls a lot of the feel from it and a couple of very specific images. Oh my god, Scourge at Calibru! Yeah, exactly that. I maybe, like, full-out yelled at the computer. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about Beta Ray Bill and about the Executioner's Last Stand and about Ragnarok and about Frog Thor. And I think it's going to be really great. So if you want to hear me talk about more stuff while I'll explain the X-Men's on hiatus, then you should go to thelightningandthestorm.com. I'm really excited about this project, and I'm excited about coming back to explain the X-Men, but I'm also excited that I never have to stop podcasting, even to breathe or sleep or anything like that. We're very different. <laughs> Apparently we are. I mean, I, I love podcasting, but the idea of a break is pretty exciting. I mean, some of that, I think, is that I'm, I've just been really, really overwhelmed. Like I mentioned, you know, I'm coming into this episode on zero hours of sleep and with a lot of packing still ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that too. And I should say, too, during the hiatus, the Explain the X-Men social media accounts will still be at least somewhat active. And we'll both be around on our individual accounts. And I will link to those in the visual companion to this, you know, where you can find us more regularly during those times on Twitter and Tumblr and so forth. All right, so um, I think that is it for the time being. We will be back in three months. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. Starting in August, new episodes will again come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. I'm not sure whether or to what extent the blog is going to be updating during the hiatus, definitely not committing to it, but I suppose it's technically possible. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com once we start up again. Next week, we'll be enjoying the novel experience of free time on a weekend. Well, speak for yourself. But tune back in August when we'll pick up where we left off. As the New Mutants comes to a close, and the 90s begin in earnest. See you then. (laughs) 